0: Well now we come to our time in God's word and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we are going to launch into uh, the second chapter here of 2 Peter. and if you're visiting today, we've been studying this um, great letter uh, for the past several months now and we've just recently finished chapter one and now we are going to start chapter two and really the entire chapter has one theme, and that is of false teachers. And so we're going to spend several weeks looking at uh, this chapter together, but I want to just begin by looking at the first three verses, which really serve as an introduction uh, to what Peter is going to tell us about false teachers uh, in these next verses. So read with me 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction, is not asleep, Father. Uh, we know that every word uh, in the Scriptures was inspired by You, that You um, led and guided each one of the writers of Scripture to write down exactly what You wanted us to to know. And uh, there's some parts that are very encouraging, um, and there are other parts that are very uh, challenging, and uh, this is one of those parts uh, where it's not necessarily going to be fun to study this chapter uh, because it's very hard-hitting. It it requires exposing uh, false teaching and false teachers, uh, even as Peter was directed by the Spirit to do in this text, and so uh, I just pray that you would... uh, by your same Spirit, illuminate our minds now that we could understand what Peter meant by what he wrote here and that uh, we would also see how it practically applies to our lives so that we can either come to Christ or become like Christ, whatever the need of our soul is today. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, Waco was about a two-hour drive from here. And this popular city in the heartland of Texas is known for a number of things. Uh, It's the birthplace of Dr. Pepper. It's home to Baylor University. Yeah, I didn't think there was gonna be any celebration about that necessarily here in Aggie country, right? Uh, The Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, the, the Mammoth National Monument, and of course, Magnolia Market, ladies, I don't wanna leave you out in this. But uh, before Chip and Joanna Gaines became the face of Waco, the first thing that came into most people's minds when they heard the name Waco is who? David Koresh. And the 51 day standoff between federal agents and the Branch Davidians at the Mount Carmel Center back in 1993. And this past spring, some of you may know this, Netflix released a three part documentary called Waco American Apocalypse. Uh, to mark the 30th anniversary of the infamous Waco siege that began with what they say was the biggest gunfight on American soil since the Civil War, and ended with a fiery inferno captured live on national television. The raid resulted in the death of four ATF agents along with 82 Branch Davidians, including Koresh himself. And ironically and sadly, the survivors who remain loyal to Koresh believe he is the son of God and that he will someday return to earth. In many ways, Koresh personified the description of false teachers that Peter gave here in chapter 2. He was a daring, self-willed heretic who despised authority, who misinterpreted the Bible and taught his own warped ideas and opinions. He not only claimed to speak for God, but to be a physical manifestation of God and therefore the only rightful husband of all the women in the group. How convenient. He went on to indulge his flesh and his corrupt desires by annulling all the marriages in the compound and requiring everyone but he and his spiritual wives to remain celibate. It's believed that Koresh fathered at least 14 children who grew up at the Mount Carmel Center. He exploited his followers and promised them freedom while he himself was a slave of corruption. Ultimately, this self-appointed, satanically inspired teacher brought destruction upon himself and those who had been deceived by his heretical beliefs and his hypocritical behavior. Peter wrote, 2 Peter, to help believers like us not be deceived by false teachers like David Koresh. And to avoid the doctrinal and, and moral compromise it was already beginning to infiltrate the first century church just 30 years after it had begun at Pentecost. And if you remember, I said at the beginning of our study that, that Peter's first letter was intended to provide comfort and hope to believers who were facing the coming threat of persecution from unbelievers outside the church. And this letter, the second letter, was intended to prepare the same believers for the coming threat of deception from false teachers within the church. And he mentions this at the end in chapter three, verse 16. He's referring to uh, untaught and unstable men who distort um, Paul's teachings as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your what? Guard, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And so here in chapter 2, Peter turned his attention to these false teachers who would arise after his death and boldly called them out and clearly exposed them so we would not be led astray by them. A very thoughtful, generous person in our church recently gave me a copy of... Uh, expository sermons on Second Peter by Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, just in time for chapter 2 and in the opening paragraph of his exposition of this chapter uh, the great physician turned preacher described this and I quote as one of the most terrible and terrifying chapters in the entire Bible. He went on and said this quote for threatening For warning, for the idea of doom and disaster and destruction, there is nowhere in holy writ itself anything which surpasses this particular chapter. And really, this chapter is simply a scathing rebuke of false teachers. And Peter held nothing back when it came to warning his readers about the damning influence of false teaching on those who are not grounded in the truth. Peter took false teaching very seriously and that's why he was so bold, he was so direct in the way that he exposed those who seek to deceive and destroy God's people. He not only wanted to uh, alert us of the presence of false teachers in the church, but he also wanted us to be able to recognize them and so he provided us a detailed description of what they look like and what they sound like so we wouldn't be hoodwinked by these heretics. Peter knew that the false teachers didn't wear a sign on their chest that says, I'm a false teacher, don't listen to me. And so here in these first three verses, Paul gave us eight warning signs of a false teacher to help us spot one when we see one or when we hear one in order to keep us from falling prey to their unbiblical beliefs and behaviors. Now again, this entire chapter is about false teaching. You could break it up into three sections, verses one through three, Uh, you could call the denunciation of false teachers. Verses 4 through 9 is the destruction of false teachers, and then verses 10 through 22 is the description of false teachers. But really, verses 1 through 3 serve as an introduction or a kind of a general overview of the subject of false teachers. And so let's look together at these eight warning signs of a false teacher. Number one, their presence is to be expected. Their presence is to be expected. Notice he says in in chapter two, verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. The word false there in the Greek is pseudo, where we get our English word pseudo. So pseudo prophets, pseudo prophets also arose among the people. And what he's doing here with that word but is he's contrasting what he just got done saying about faithful prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and all the minor prophets there uh, who were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke on behalf of God, right? Chapter one, verse 21. No uh, prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But forget the chapter break there. False prophets also arose among the people. So while there were faithful prophets in the Old Testament, there were also many false prophets who claimed to speak for God but were motivated by selfish gain and told the Jews what they wanted to hear and not what God had told them to say. And so God warned his people in the Old Testament to be wary of prophets who tried to lead them astray And he actually commanded them to kill false prophets. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you've not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. And so God used the faithful prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel to sharply denounce the bogus prophets, the false prophets. Um, Just a couple of examples, Jeremiah chapter 14, uh, verses 13 uh, through 15, but... Ah, Lord God, this is the the words of Jeremiah here. I said, look, the prophets are telling them you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in his place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them they are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall meet their end. So God had no patience or tolerance at all for false prophets. Um, You could look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Um, You can look at Ezekiel chapter 13, one through eight. Just to show uh, that the Old Testament is filled with examples of these false prophets who rose up among the people. And, And Peter wanted to warn his readers that there would also be false prophets in the church, just as there were throughout the history of Israel. And Peter when he said, Just as there will also be false teachers among you, he may have had in mind specific prophecies that Jesus had made regarding false teachers that, that Peter had heard with his own ears. For example, Matthew seven, fifteen, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Again, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four, eleven, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead even. So, as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, which the point is, it's not possible if you're truly saved to be deceived by false teaching. In fact, we're going to learn this chapter later in this chapter in 2 Peter uh, that God knows how to rescue the righteous from ungodly teaching. Um, Peter also mentioned Paul in this letter in chapter 3. Um, And so perhaps uh, Peter was thinking of some of Paul's warnings about the inevitability of false teachers. Like, for example, in Acts chapter 20, this is what he said to the elders in the church in Ephesus. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I mean, that must have been a shocking elders meeting when Paul said, hey, some of you guys are gonna become heretics and you're gonna lead some people astray. Peter's fellow apostles, John and Jude, uh, both warn their readers against the ever-present danger of false teachers within the church. Uh, 2 John chapter 7, or excuse me, 2 John verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And then Jude 4, and, and by the way, just want to remind you that 2 Peter and Jude are like sister epistles. Um, they're almost identical in their uh, exposure of false teaching and false teachers. And so uh, what one says, the other says, um, but listen to what it says in Jude 4, uh, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before and marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The point that Peter's making here is very simple, that there has always been and there always will be false teachers among the people of God. And that's why we must remain vigilant at all times and constantly be on guard against those who distort the truth and seek to destroy our souls. So the first warning sign of false teachers is their presence is to be expected. Secondly, another warning sign is is their teaching is usually very subtle. Their teaching is usually very subtle. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 1. He says, these false teachers who will come among you will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Just like we just read in, in Jude, false teachers creep into the church unnoticed, posing as shepherds and Pastors and teachers and evangelists and musicians and authors. And they smuggle in error and they teach it as if it was God's word. I assume you're familiar with the concept of the Trojan horse. Taken from Greek mythology, when Greece went to war against the city of Troy, after 10 long years of besieging the city, they were unable to take it. Uh, And so the Greeks sailed away in apparent defeat. And as a a gift, they left a large wooden horse outside the front gate of the city. And when the people of Troy saw the Greeks sailing away, they all cheered and they opened the gates and they dragged in the wooden horse uh, into their city. And that night, while everyone was laying there, sleeping comfortably for the first time in many years, a group of Greek soldiers who had been hiding inside the wooden horse crawled out, opened the city gates... And meanwhile, the rest of the Greek army had turned around and secretly came back and they entered the city in pillars and destroyed it. Classic illustration of the art of deception. And really a vivid analogy of what Satan does in an attempt to destroy the church. Satan was the original false teacher who led mankind astray by subtly distorting or twisting or confusing what God had said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter three, I'm assuming you're familiar with this text, just as Genesis 3, one, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice, he didn't just come at him with something way out in left field, he went straight to them with God's word, and and made it sound like he cared about what God's word said. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. What did he just do there? Tell a big old fat lie. For God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also uh, to her husband with her and he ate. So Satan lied to Eve, which should come as no surprise since Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, John 8:44) and satan's servants are just like him they're crafty deceivers and masters of disguise that's what how paul described them in second corinthians chapter 11 Verse 3, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. those of you that hunt, you get this whole disguise thing because you wear oftentimes what's called camouflage, right? And you want to blend into the surrounding. And, and so uh, you, you disguise yourself. You want to trick those ducks. You want to trick those deer, right, to think you're not there when you really are. And so you camouflage yourself. And so false teachers, they, they cleverly camouflage themselves and they disguise Satan's lies as God's truth. And they, they mix just enough truth with their error to make it sound believable. It's kind of like a camouflage pattern, right? They kind of pick things in the woods that it kind of looks like, right, what, the, what your coat does. It kind of looks like the tree or the bush or the ground, right? And, and so you just mix enough of that together that it looks believable, And so false teachers, they they oftentimes use biblical terminology like inspiration and redemption. And you're like, ooh, okay, these guys understand the Bible, but they redefine what these terms mean. Warren Wiersbe said it brilliantly. He said, false teachers use our vocabulary, but they do not use our dictionary." And so immature and untaught believers hear their sermons or read their books and, and think they're sound in the faith, but they're being conned, they're being tricked, they're being scammed, they're being lied to by counterfeit truth. And false teaching is as, is as fatal as it is subtle, and that it leads people down the broad road that leads to destruction and damns their souls to hell for all eternity. Notice the end of verse 1. It says, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So, a second warning sign is that their teaching is usually very subtle. A third warning sign is their profession of faith in Christ is likely false. Their profession of faith in Christ is likely false. Notice this interesting phrase. It says, even denying the master who bought them. Which I'll admit is a difficult phrase to interpret, and we need to ask ourselves, what did Peter mean when he wrote that false teachers deny Jesus who bought them or redeemed them, is how we usually interpret or understand that word bought. Um, some think that Peter was saying that false teachers were saved at one point, but then they lost their salvation, The problem with that interpretation is that would contradict other passages in Scripture that clearly teach that a person who is truly saved can never lose their salvation. Uh, John 10, verses 28 and 29 talk about how we are secure uh, in the hands of Christ. Romans 8, 29, and 30 talk about uh, how those uh, who God uh, foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. These whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those, these whom he justified, he also glorified. Guess what? Salvation is a package deal and it's God's work from beginning to end. And so if we do nothing to save ourselves, then why would we think we could do something to unsave ourselves? Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. That's the confidence that we have, the assurance of salvation. Others think that, Peter was saying that while Jesus' death on the cross paid for everyone's sins, including the false teachers, it didn't apply to the false teachers because they rejected the gospel. They refused to repent and believe in Christ. The problem with that interpretation is that it seems to contradict other passages in Scripture that clearly teach that Christ only died in the place of those who would repent of their sin and believe in him. And this is where we uh, approach the subject of unlimited atonement versus uh, limited atonement. In other words, we're talking about the extent of the atonement. And the blood of Christ is indeed sufficient to cover everyone's sin. But if everyone's sin is covered by the blood blood of Christ, then why aren't all people saved? That would be universalism. The fact that all are not saved implies that God's plan of redemption then was perhaps ineffective since there, were, there, there are countless people in hell for whom Christ died and endured God's wrath on their behalf, but they're experiencing God's wrath, wrath themselves in hell unless the effective nature of his death was limited in its design. The way I like to say it is simply this, that Christ specifically died for all those who repent and believe. Um, instead of saying Christ died for you, I just say Christ died for sinners like you. It's just just a nuance there, being more specific, being a little more refined in our theology. The point is that Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect and actually secure their salvation as opposed to just making it possible for everyone to be saved. Again, there's verses that talk about uh, that indicate this, um, for example, Matthew chapter 1, a Christmas verse, no less. Uh, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man could not, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, John 10, 15, Jesus talks about uh, giving up his life for uh, his sheep, Um, Acts 20 28, we just read that, how Jesus purchased with his own blood the church. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, talks about uh, how uh, husbands are to love their their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Revelation 5 9 talks about how the lamb. Uh, was slain to purchase for God with his blood people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And again, there's plenty of other verses that make it seem like God died for everyone in the world, right? For God so loved the world. I think those world passages are really talking about uh, as opposed to just the Jews, right? That Jesus didn't just die for Jews, he died for Gentiles as well, for the people people all over the world. Um, and again, again, Some of you are sitting here getting ready to get up and say, this guy's a heretic. Well, that's why there's a question on the back of um, your notes there. How do we navigate the fine line of soundly rebuking false teachers and being overly critical of a fellow servant of God who holds a different theological position on a secondary issue? That's what we're talking about here is a secondary issue, right? We're talking about the doctrines of grace. And uh, to be honest, limited atonement was the hardest one for me to swallow. But the more I studied it out, I thought, wow, this is, I can see it. And, and Spurgeon, Spurgeon's funny. Uh, if you've not read Fur- Spurgeon, you've got to read Spurgeon. He's funny. And he would use a lot of sarcasm. And he, at one place, told the Armenians, he said, hey, uh, you can have your view of unlimited atonement. We don't need it. You're the ones that actually limit it, not us. Because you say that Christ's death only works for those that receive it. Uh, where we're saying, no, it works for everybody who Christ died for. Um, and so, again, something to study. If you want something to study to dive deep in this, you could read the introductory article in the John Owen's book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. You're like, I ain't reading that book. I can't even understand the title, right? The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. J.I. Packer wrote an introductory article about limited atonement, and it's fascinating to read. And so I would encourage you to, con- or I commend that to you. Um, to to read, again, that was more of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I had to wrestle with, in my own thinking, how do I understand uh, what it means that they deny the master who bought them? Uh, Again, I think the simplest way to understand what Peter was saying here is that false teachers profess to be Christians, and they claim to serve as his representatives, but they really aren't. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, right, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they pretend to be saved, and they may even think they're saved, but the fact that they refuse to submit to the lordship of Christ gives evidence that they're not truly saved. Uh, In fact, later on in the chapter, verse 20, it talks about them having escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to their true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Peter compares these false teachers to dogs and pigs. That doesn't sound like believers to me. And we have plenty of examples in the Gospels of different kinds of soil that look promising but never ultimately come to fruition. You have sheep, you've got goats, you've got wheat, you've got tares. Uh, indistinguishable in the body of Christ, right? You, you, you don't know who's truly saved and who's not. They, they all look the same. They're all here claiming to be Christians, thinking they're saved. It, 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 we don't know that for sure. Some other verses um, that would help us interpret this about having denied um, having denied the master who bought them, 2 Timothy 3, 5, um, Paul says this about ungodly men in the future, in the last days, who will hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. In Titus 1.16, Paul describes the false teachers with these words, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. And then um, Jude 19, um, it actually says that false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. In other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, that means you've never been truly born again. You've never been regenerated. You're not a child of God. If if you return to your old way of life, that means you never were a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you walk away from Christ and never return, it's because you were never truly saved to begin with, right? 1 John 2.19, they left us because they were never one of us. And the fact that false teachers are, aren't truly saved as affir- affirmed by their eternal destiny. Again, look at according to Peter here, they are doomed for destruction in hell. It says, um, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You mentioned that again, destruction in verse 3. He mentions it in chapter 3, verse 16 again, about their destruction. So, a third warning sign of a false teacher, their profession of faith is in, in Christ is likely false. How about this? Number four, Their ministry is often successful. Their ministry is often successful. Look at verse two. Many will follow their sensuality. Have you noticed that false teachers often attract a huge following because of their eloquent way of communicating, their dynamic personality, or, or because they lower the biblical standard of morality and encourage their followers to indulge their flesh and enjoy their freedom in Christ. But we need to remember, just because someone has a successful ministry based on the number of people who go to their church or who attend their conferences or who read their books, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a faithful servant of God. Jesus, in fact, said in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are, what? Many who enter through it. So, be careful, because uh, oftentimes a false teacher's ministry is, 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 is successful. Don't be duped by that. Number five, their lifestyle is typically immoral. Their lifestyle is typically immoral. Notice he says many will follow their sensuality. That word sensuality is a word used throughout the New Testament in the context of sexual immorality. Um, we see it in Romans 13, Second 13, uh, Corinthians 12:21, Galatians 5:19. Let me just read Ephesians 4:19. Ephesians 4:19, talking about unbelievers here. It says, they have become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In fact, you really don't have to leave Second Peter chapter 2 to get a feel for what Peter was referring to with this word sensuality. Look at verse 7. It says that, they, that God rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, referring to the homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires. Verses 13 and 14, uh, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. And then verses 18 and 19, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then again, Jude 4, we just read that. But he talks about ungodly persons who creep in unnoticed, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All that to say, one of the common characteristics of false teachers is that they're not sexually pure. And sometimes it comes to light that they're sleeping around with women in the church or they get caught in some other lewd act, And then they justify their sexual sin by promoting a counterfeit form of grace. According to Romans 6, we know that grace means that being free from sin is to obey Christ. But false teachers twist grace to mean freedom to do what you want to do. Because we're no longer under the law, so you can just kind of do whatever you want to do. It's what's referred to as anti-nomianism. There's no law. But if someone is a slave to lust and their lives are are characterized by, by sinful sexual behavior, that proves they're a fraud. They're a fake. They're a phony. And I'm sure you realize that there is an inseparable connection between false teaching and loose living. That they go together. And that's why we need to pay particular attention to not only what someone says they believe, but also how they live their life, how they behave And we need to avoid any teacher whose beliefs or behaviors are clearly not in line with what the Bible teaches. I love how Paul uh, exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. He said, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. And I think what Paul was doing was was guarding Timothy or warning Timothy against the two biggest pitfalls of being in the ministry. What are they? Heresy and hypocrisy. And so he says, pay close attention to yourself. Make sure you're living a holy and pure life and also to your teaching. Make sure you're teaching what's true because you can be a a great Bible teacher, a, a faithful preacher, but be living an ungodly life, and you're a hypocrite. And you could maybe live a, a pure and holy life, but not be and be sloppy with the scriptures, and then you become a heretic. And so we need to be careful um, as we observe the, the lifestyle, not just the, the teaching, but the lifestyles of those who um, perhaps are false teachers. Number six, another... Warning sign is their hypocrisy is detrimental to Christianity. That their hypocrisy is detrimental to Christianity. Notice it says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned literally, blasphemed, which means to injure someone's reputation. And because false teachers model a pleasure-driven lifestyle that's totally opposed to the teaching and example of Christ, it brings reproach on Christ and his church. Romans 2.24, Paul said, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, when those of us who claim to be Christians don't live like Christians, then unbelievers feel justified in their sin because to them, Christians are just a bunch of what? Hypocrites. And you may remember in his first letter, Peter called us to live in such a way that the world would see our good works, our good deeds, and glorify our Father in heaven. In other words, that we would make God and the gospel look good. And so we need to remember that as Christians, we bear the name of Christ and how we live our lives affects how others, how others view Christ and Christianity. Number seven. The seventh warning sign of a false teacher is their motive is personal gain. Their motive is personal gain. Look at verse three. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That word for false there in the Greek is where we get our word in the English, plastic. They'll exploit you with their plastic words. Artificial words, they're not genuine, they're not sincere, and what they believe and teach is based on fabricated words, things that they make up as opposed to truths that are inspired by God. That's why Peter in the previous chapter in verse 16 said we did we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make this stuff up like the false teachers do. I and mean, we saw this with our own eyes. And so Peter clearly exposed, the, the, the underlying motive of false teachers is greed. First and foremost, a, a, a desire for money, but perhaps also prestige and, and, and power. In other words, they're, they're in the ministry for what they can get for themselves from others rather than what they can give to others. And instead of being loving, selfless, sacrificial shepherds who, who, who have the sheep's best interests in mind, they're self-loving, manipulative, greedy hucksters who use the sheep to stroke their egos and to pad their pockets. They're like the people Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 2.17 who peddle the word of God. They're, they're in the ministry to make money. They see it as as a lucrative profession and they take advantage of their followers by turning their church into a a marketplace where the larger the crowd, the bigger the paycheck. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with making a living off the ministry. Paul said he had every right to uh, get paid for the work of the ministry. He chose to be a tent maker instead, just to be an example, but he did uh, tell the folks in Ephesus through Timothy that uh, a workman is worthy of his hire. You shouldn't muzzle an ox uh, when he's treading out the grain that uh, an elder who uh, is faithfully, teaches God's word, is worthy of double honor. So we know that's all true. But it's wrong to be primarily motivated by money. Look at verse 14. It says, uh, having eyes full of adultery that never sees within, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. And in the previous letter, First Peter five 5:2, uh, excuse me, he, uh, Peter said that shepherds should serve voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. One commentator, I thought, said it very accurately. They said, "Quote: This ought to sound all too familiar to believers today." Observe the frequent relationship between false teaching and materialism. Christian television, publishing, conferencing, and numerous other vehicles of mass communication are big business today. When used to disseminate the truth of the gospel with integrity, these avenues are effective means for spreading truth and advancing Christ's kingdom. But when these mediums are infiltrated and hijacked by false teachers, they become ready resources for distributing intoxicating and cancerous information. All the while, the propagation of false teaching yields flowing streams of income that pad perverted pockets, end quote. All that to say, we need to be discerning about where we invest the money that God entrusts to us for the work of his kingdom. I think we all need to carefully examine the doctrinal beliefs and the financial practices and even the lifestyles of the missionaries and ministries that we support. And we need to avoid anyone who uses their ministry as a means to gain personal wealth. Well, there's one more warning sign, and that is their doom is guaranteed. It says at the end of verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The fact that God will judge them has been hanging over them from eternity past, and there are repeated examples throughout the Old Testament of God's judging false teachers. In fact, we're going to see that next week in verses 4 through 9. I think Peter's point is simply this. God is not standing by idle. The, The heresy and the hypocrisy of false teachers has not escaped his attention. He knows, he sees, he hears, and he will punish them accordingly. It says their destruction is not asleep. God hasn't dozed off like Elijah accused Baal of doing, right, in 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, maybe he's asleep. That's why he's not responding. God never sleeps, he never slumbers. He's wide awake and he's ready to judge these heret- heretical hucksters. And I think it's ironic that these false teachers had explained away the return of Christ, which again is very convenient because therefore there's no final judgment, but they were in for a rude awakening. Their day of reckoning would surely come. So Peter gave us these eight warning signs because, again, false teachers don't show up with a big sign that says, I'm a false teacher, don't listen to me. He wanted to give us some warning signs to help us spot them, keep us from falling prey to them. And really, the best defense against false teachers is just to know the truths given to us by the true prophets and the true apostles of the Old and New Testament. In fact, he's going to say that in chapter 3, verse 2. I want you to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Listen, none of us have the time and energy to study every counterfeit teaching out there. The the, the sheer number is is overwhelming. We need to simply study God's Word until we're so familiar with it that that, that we can't be deceived by some unbiblical teaching. And I've used this illustration before, but I read it recently again, that there was a course... uh, to train bank tellers how to detect counterfeit bills. And guess what? For two weeks, they never looked at a counterfeit bill. All they did was study the real currency, day after day, week after week, hour after hour, so they became so familiar with the real thing that they would never be fooled by a fake. So the question is, how well do you know the real thing? Are you grounded in God's word? Can I give you a a homework assignment? Write down the eight major categories of biblical doctrine or the Christian faith. I'm talking about the Bible, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, man and his depravity, salvation, the church, and last thing. So those are the eight basic categories. You take all the teaching of the Bible and you can summarize it in eight categories. This is what the Bible teaches about the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches about God. This is what the Bible teaches about Christ. This is what the Bible teaches about Holy Spirit, man, salvation, the church, and last things. And what you do, write out those eight things and then state in a sentence what you believe the Bible teaches about each one of those. And then jot down a verse or two that supports your statement. And if you need some help, you can go on our website and uh, on our homepage, you go down and look for our beliefs and we have a little summary statement of our doctrinal statement, and that's what I'm getting at, that, that all of you should be able to have a little, your own personal summary doctrinal statement to keep you on track. And, and so when, when somebody comes along and says something, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Something smells fishy about that. I'm going to go back to my personal doctrinal statement that I worked on based on the scriptures so that I make sure I stay on track with the truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've been able to have together looking at uh, this subject of false teaching and false teachers. not a popular subject by any means, but it's a necessary one to discuss. And so help us to be good Bereans now who take what I have said and go back to the scriptures and to make sure it it lines up with the Bible. And uh, Lord, that we would not just uh, receive uh, the word uh, uh, as it is today, just, just a man's word, but as it actually is your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.